Good afternoon. I'm Greg Lois. This is Thomas uh, Park. And if you're here today, it's to watch Getting the Most Out of Your IMEs. Um, during this presentation, feel free to email us with any questions. Email us uh, questions afterward. You can always call us with any questions. Um, hopefully you can hear us right now. We just did a little test to make sure you could hear us. If you're having difficulty hearing us, um, remember, you can always listen through your computer or you can dial in in the number that's in the handout that Thomas and I provided to you earlier this morning. Okay, uh, if you're here today, it's because you're part of our overall webinar series. Uh, the third Monday of the month is always going to be New York. The fourth Monday is New Jersey. It's the third Monday of the month and we're doing New York today. Um, so let's begin. Uh, our goal today uh, is to talk to you about what to do and how to get IMEs and how best to use your IME physicians. So Thomas, take it away. Okay, so you get a call from your client. Should we get an IME? That is the question we're here to answer. Now, of course, the best answer is it's a case-by-case -case basis, but there are certain situations that we do recommend getting an IME. One of those situations are when the claimant has a C4.3, well, that's an opinion on permanency. We always recommend to get an opinion on permanency in those situations because, as you know, claimant's physicians like to exaggerate what the claimant has. Another situation is when a claimant's doctor puts them at MMI. Another uh, situation is when you want to challenge care, such as when the claimant's physician submits an MG2 or C4 loss. Um, the last situation that we always recommend is when you just want to dispute a body part or a consequential site that's also raised. Yeah, now we skipped a slide by accident there. Sorry, everybody. But that slide is to remind you to ask us questions during this presentation. We can answer them. Okay. And you're talking about when to get an IME. And, and the clearest example, I think, there is that they already have their own C.4.3, right. mm -hmm. which is telling us, hey, uh, this person has some degree of permanency. So we're going to usually, unless... It's very favorable to us, which right. it typically isn't. Uh, we're going to get our own. Um, and how about when the claimant doctor puts the claimant at MMI? Frankly, that's like a unicorn. I've very rarely seen right. them voluntarily release anyone from mm -hmm. care. Uh, it's usually us fighting to get them there. Um, and then, of course, you talked about, hey, we're disputing specific care. Mm -hmm. Give me an idea in your practice, um, what's the percentage uh, of IMEs by each one of those different needs. So they already have their 4.3 uh, or have been voluntarily put at MMI versus we're fighting care. Do you have a feel for it? I mean, you're, you're out there in hot bog every day. Uh, what type of IMEs are you typically getting or is it all of them? In my experience, the majority are when we're either challenging care or when we're disputing a body part. As you know, we deal with a lot of controverted cases. That's right. So a lot of them are disputing causal relationship. Okay. Uh, why don't we talk about how to set these up? Okay, now that we told you certain situations when to get the IME, now the next step is how to set them up. Now there's uh, required forms by board regulations that you guys have already probably dealt with. Um, now the first form that you need to know is the IME 5. That is the actual notice that you serve on the claimant notifying of the IME. Uh, board regulations require that at least seven days prior to the scheduled IME, it needs to be served on the claimant. Once that is served and claimant has notice of the IME, the next is the IME 3. Those, that is a list of the records that will be sent to the uh, IME physician prior to the IME that he can review. It is important that all those records be submitted to the board prior to the IME. 
once they have the IME 5 notice and you have the records that the doctor will require to review prior to the IME, then comes the actual report, which will be on the IME 4. And the IME 4 must be served 10 days on after the report on all parties, which includes the board, insurance carrier, the attending physician, the claimant's attorney, and also the claimant. It's important that you serve it on all those parties or you can uh, <clears throat> result in preclusion of the IME report. And when we say you serve it, most of our clients are using vendors right, to do correct. this. Right. And we typically are getting involved, not at the time the IME is set up or scheduled. Much more typically, we're getting the IME for form. That's really when we're sort of stepping into it as defense. Right. Tell me a little bit about what you look at when you look at an IME for. What do you care about? Now, what we care about, what I typically look for is first, is the doctor qualified? It's always important that you have a qualified physician that's board certified and coded by the workers' compensation board. Second is the actual contents of the report. What I like to see is that they actually examine the body parts that are either in question or that need to be examined that are establishing the claim. I like to see the doctors actually provide range of motion measurements and then state that it was based on either some type of instrument like a goniometer rather just based on uh, visual observation. It's important to have range of motion measurements because that not only adds credibility to their report, but it also helps with um, later on when we do a settlement analysis or possible uh, analysis on exposure. It's important to have those measurements. Uh, also, it's important to, of course, have uh, opinion on degree of disability. If you're controverted in case, of course, causal relationship, and also whether the claim has reached MMI and the need for further treatment and so on. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned, hey, doctor, did you use an instrument right. to measure the range of motion? Because so many of the treating physicians say, well, I, I sort of eyeballed it or I used my right. experience to sort of figure out how far they were able to move their arm. And that's a great opportunity for us to cross-examine them. Exactly. I've had a case where we cross-examined a claimant's physician that admitted on the direct or cross-examination they based it on physical observation. When it came to submissions, we stated, claimant's doctor used visual observation. Our doctor used a goniometer. The uh, judge found our doctor more credible. Wow, that's rare. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I see a lot of our reports get bounced. I mean, over the years, I've seen hundreds of reports get bounced for Section 137 violations. Can you tell everybody what that means, what that is? Basically, 137 means it's precluded in your uh, IM report basically because it's not properly served. But if you look at the board the board site, there's millions of rules on there. But the most common is basically certain situations is, or is the doctor qualified? Like I stated earlier, you want a board-certified workers' compensation um, coded doctor. And uh, one of the typical pitfalls that we've seen nowadays is untimely filed reports or reports not served on the correct parties. Um, remember, the IME 5, seven days prior to the scheduled IME. IME 3, uh, notice, make sure that all the records that was served on the doctor to be served with to the board. IME uh, 4, make sure it's 10 days after the examination and that it's served on all parties, as I explained earlier. And also is, the last one is, where all the materials that sent to the doctor sent to the board. So make sure everything's uniform. Right, and I feel like our adversaries have gotten much more sophisticated mm -hmm. about that, meaning um, they're starting to look carefully at who is this served on and was mm -hmm. it served on all the appropriate parties as any reason they could come up with to throw one of our cases out, our reports out, mm -hmm. helps their case. Exactly, and then at her hearings, I always have judges look at the IME 4 notice 
to see that all parties are properly served. Right. So we do get our IMEs precluded. Uh, it happens all the time for various little regulatory missteps, wasn't served on the right person, not in the right form, something like that. Uh, the question we always get is, what, what do we do, Thomas, if our IME is precluded? Do we still have the opportunity to cross-examine their physician? Yes, you still have the opportunity to cross-examine the physician. However, because we don't have our own uh, report to dispute their findings, it won't be that persuasive. And most of the time, the law judge won't even uh, grant us the opportunity if we don't have a, our own IME report. Yeah, no, no conflicting medical, right. no reason to give us a report exactly. or give us a cross-examination. Uh, one question I get a lot, um, hey, Greg, can you guys schedule my IMEs? Uh, in fact, a client asked me that a couple weeks ago, and I said, yeah, sure. There's nothing in the uh, rules that would prevent your attorney from you know, schedule, picking the physician, scheduling the IME, sending the medicals to the uh, IME physician, making sure the claimant has the IME five, the notices, all that stuff, doing it. It's going to be more expensive, though. I presume that uh, most of our clients are using vendors for this, and the reason is because they can do it more cost-effectively. There's also a lot of rules to navigate. There's no reason your attorneys can't do this for you. It does seem probably uh, cost-prohibitive or not a good use of litigation resources for many of our clients. Okay, another topic is what can you actually send to the IME doctor when you schedule these um, IME examinations? One thing is a cover letter, the IME 5, one thing we recommend on that cover letter is to actually um, highlight exactly what you want the doctor to address. Mm-hmm. If you are disputing causal relationship, make sure you state in there, doctor, please um, address causal relationship. If it's MMI, is the claim MMI, permanency, or, assert, or extra additional site, make sure it's all in there. Mm-hmm. Another question we usually get is, can we send a surveillance video? Yes, you can always send a surveillance video to the IME physician. Also, we sometimes recommend if there's something suspicious with the claimant that we have um, set up so it's, um, surveillance uh, is done of the claimant going to the uh, actual examination. Yeah, like a perfect time to pick them up for right. surveillance because we know where they're going to be. Hey, we scheduled mm-hmm. this appointment. Mm-hmm. If they show up, that's a great time for our investigator to get on the case. Right. Now, also, not just medical records can be sent to the IME doctor, but also non-medicals. One example is the uh, surveillance videos that we just uh, addressed. And one thing that you have to know is, can some some people ask us, can they call the doctor prior to the deposition to prep them or dispute? No, you definitely can't do that. Right. Uh, yeah, that's considered undue influence. Uh, big problem. Uh, we don't really get the opportunity to prep these doctors before the IME or before they testify on behalf of defending that IME. So that's a big challenge for us. This is a re- really a very local or one of the rules in New York that kind of it differentiates it from other uh, jurisdictions where we really can't communicate directly with the IME doctor. Now, uh, you can communicate with them, but everything you communicate to your doctor needs to be copied to our adversary in writing, mm-hmm. which destroys any sort of surprise uh, element to sending them surveillance video. If we have great surveillance of this person working mm-hmm. or water skiing or something like that, and we say, okay, we're going to send this to our, uh, our IME physician, mm-hmm. guess what? Now that cat's out of the bag. It has no surprise value, right? Because every document that we're going to send to this physician uh, who's doing this IME, we also have to copy to the board and our part, our adversary is going to see it. Right. And one thing is because we can't prep our doctors, we do like doctors that stick to their reports, which we'll touch upon a little later. Right. So that's why we like certain things in the reports. Right. 
Right. And also non-medical. So that is things like incident reports or maybe prior stuff, prior Mm -hmm. FMLA leave requests, things that we think would help uh, the doctor form an opinion about causal relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And the crazy thing is we can't prepare our doctors, but they certainly are preparing Mm -hmm. their claimants. When I say they, I mean our adversary attorneys are preparing their claimants uh, for what to do and how to act at an IME. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, if you just go on YouTube and you say type in – preparing for an IME, right? You'll come up with all of these claimants attorneys videos and they're telling their their clients, I mean this joker who's wearing a plaid shirt and jeans is telling his clients exactly what to say and how to act in front of the IME physician. And if you just do a little Google search on this just for fun, you'll see that it's quite extensive the uh the sort of uh advice that they're giving to their clients. Um and by that I mean uh they're really very carefully telling them, hey, you can say this, hey, you can say that, um, you know, bring with you records with you, uh, bring with them a diary of your pain. So they really are preparing for these IMEs, even though we're not really allowed to communicate directly with the uh, uh, the doctor. They can communicate with their client all they want and really get them set up. So that's one of those frustrating things. All right, before we go any further, I just want to remind everyone, uh, you can ask questions. This is live. So uh, you should have a box on your computer where you can click on and ask us questions and we can respond to them during the presentation. We'll have time at the end. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. Now, what can you do about a missed IME? I mean, there are situations, there have been situations in the past where the claimant does fail to show up for an IME. Now, what can you do in these situations? Well, obviously, one thing you can do is reschedule. Right. But one thing we recommend, especially in controverted cases, is suspend benefits. Now, when you want to suspend benefits, you have to make sure that well, there's two situations. Is there a CCP, which is a continuum for payments? If there is, remember that you have to file an RFA-2 to make sure that you get a court order suspending benefits. When there is none, then you can suspend benefits voluntarily. Right. So you just use some lingo there, CCP. Oh, right. All right. So just for the audience, CCP means carrier continue payment. Mm-hmm. And that means we're under an order. Some judge somewhere at some point mm-hmm. made an order in this case. And that's the circumstance where you, there's no, you can't do self-help. Person misses an IME. Under Section 19 of the statute, it does say if you do not attend to one of our exams, we can terminate benefits. However, if you're already under an order, the proper way to bring that to the judge's attention is? The RFA. Okay. Uh, and that's RFA stands for Request for Further Action. That's basically like saying, Judge, uh, you know, we, we need you to take a look at this. Right. Fair? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what we're telling you is if you're not under an order, no judge has stepped into this case, you've got no written order from the board, you can do self-help. And by that, I mean uh, they didn't show up for the exam. Maybe you were a nice guy and we rescheduled it once for them, and they didn't show up the second time. You can terminate benefits at that time. Uh, this is probably the most common question I get from clients about IMEs. Can I terminate for not appearing? Um, let's just talk quickly about how best to use counsel, right? Um, in the last six months, we've done hundreds of depositions of treating physicians and IME doctors. We know who's good. We know who's bad. So reach out to your attorneys. It doesn't have to be us. It could be anybody. And just say, hey, do you know who this doctor is? Do they give good reports? This is someone I should use. Um, so rely on counsel or, or, or your adjuster to help you select a good IME physician. Um, you can also rely on counsel to help you with the IME cover letter. Personally, I don't like it when clients email me and just say, hey, could you write the whole cover letter? I say, no, 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 no. How about 
you take a first crack at it and you give me your sort of standard letter and we'll touch it up and make sure we're not missing the most important mm -hmm. questions. I mean, you know, the typical situation is a, a consequential injury. I hurt my left leg at work and now all of a sudden it's my right leg and we need an IME doctor to say, no, the right leg is not related. You know, let's make sure that IME letter clearly tells the doctor, here's why we're getting this exam today, right? Um, we also are going to use this IME report. This is the council uh, to help us um, formulate and decide how we're going to cross-examine the treating physician. I love it when my, um, my doctors give me really good reports and even point out the errors in the treatment. You know, sometimes we'll get one of these really, really good IME reports that'll say something like, hey, this person had 29 visits for, of occupational therapy or PT, and, and it's not getting them any better. Why are you continuing to do this? And they really point out exactly where the treating physician went wrong. I love that. I also rely on the IME physicians in complex cases. So the pulmonary, the occupational exposure cases, vascular injuries, cardiovascular injuries. Hey, uh, you know, the, the heart's a complex organ. I really want my treater to explain, I'm sorry, my IME physician to explain to me exactly why this is not a causally related condition, right? Help me uh, come up with my cross-examine of the treater. Uh, Please also know that in New York, there is a concept of impartial examinations, and the board maintains a list of impartial examiners. Uh, we sometimes game that list, like we'll use somebody off that impartial list to do an IME just to keep them from being the impartial examiner later. Again, it's a little bit beyond the scope of our discussion today, but that's something that we consider and think about. All right. Uh, how about surveillance at the IME? Let's talk about that. Um, one thing is... I've been noticing recently that claimants actually do self-surveillance at these IMEs. But, yes, we can do self-surveillance uh, at the IMEs ourselves. Right. We've got to give them notice, though. Right. That's why you would write that into IME 5, specifically stating that surveillance will be done at the IME. Meaning we're going to videotape it. Exactly. Yeah. And I've also seen recently some of the claimants are showing up with video cameras and a friend. Right. And they want to videotape the IME. And that's... That's absolutely allowed. Right. The IME 5 notice specifically states that the claimant can't um, videotape or record the uh, IME. Uh, of course, some of our doctors, when somebody else shows up with a video camera, is like, whoa, 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 I don't want to be doing this IME. Right. And sometimes I think they're using that as a, as a tactic to get out of that IME. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about functional capacity evaluations, FCEs. Right. Now, yes, you can request this at an IME, so make sure that on the IME 5 notice that uh, you ask the physician whether an FCE will be uh, necessary. If the doctor says, yes, it is necessary, then the claimant will be required to attend as long as they had notice of it. Yep. And, you know, we don't have another opportunity to get a functional capacity sure. evaluation. I like them. Sometimes they're very useful in a case, especially if it's like what kind of work can this person do? Mm -hmm. uh, what are they, what kind of duty can we offer them? Uh, but of course, claimants do not want to go to functional capacity evaluations. Mm -hmm. uh, voluntarily, they don't want to go. Mm -hmm. So you can t ask your IME doctor in that cover letter, doctor, do you think a functional capacity evaluation would help you evaluate overall permanent residual disability or impairment or ability to work? And the doctor can say yes. Uh, then the next challenge is we got to pay for the functional capacity evaluation, and then we have to pay for our IME doctor to review it and maybe do another narrative. Uh, so that's going to increase cost, but it is an option. And sometimes our adversaries will say, you can't force my guy to go to a functional capacity evaluation. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, here's a reference to some board information that says we can request you to do that. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what us, council, mm -hmm. wants to see from IMEs. And we've kind of touched on that already, but... Let's, let's walk through it for people. Okay. 
first thing is one thing we always look for is if the doctor is qualified. The more qualified the doctor is, the more persuasive and credible his testimony will be. Yeah, I, I love it when we have like an mm -hmm. orthopedic surgeon versus somebody who's just got like a general family practice, you know, mill kind of doctor with no specific mm -hmm. certifications or board certs. I love that. And I love it when we have a orthopedic surgeon as opposed to a chiropractor. Oh, yeah, well, that's, right. that's a slam dunk. Right. Good. So um, another thing we look for is that the doctor is clear in his testimony. He sticks to basically what he has in the IME. Um, we always want him to testify clearly and understandably because you have to remember the audience is a law judge that's reading this, uh, uh, I guess, the transcript. So you want to make sure that his uh, opinion and points are clearly stated. Another thing we like is that he sticks with his IME report. A lot of times claimants of decisions will try and you know, mess with the uh, IME physician by asking him about documents that don't exist or certain conditions that don't exist or hypotheticals mm -hmm. and expect the doctor to answer that question. We like doctors that stick to the case effect who, te who testify, you know, I, I haven't reviewed that. I've never seen this. The claim doesn't have this condition. In this case, this is where we're at. Yeah, and that's and that's cross-examination. I mean, right. the cross-examination of our doctors, they love to pull things out of thin right. air and say, well, if you knew this mm -hmm. or if you had that test. Right. And, you know, I agree with you. I love it when our doctor pushes back and says, whoa, 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 whoa. You right. know, I testify within the four corners of the right. report. This is what I reviewed. This mm -hmm. is the person that I evaluated. Uh, we're not evaluating hypotheticals. Right. right. Mm -hmm. But they love to do it. I mean, they really try to derail the testimony by right. throwing in hypos. Um, all right. And then the last point. Uh, Want somebody who holds up on cross. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. some of these physicians get, get rattled mm -hmm. and they start saying maybe. Uh, you know, I've seen evaluate, uh, cross exams where they say, well, doctor, how about this? How about that? Mm -hmm. And the doctor starts going, well, maybe. Right. Or it's a possibility that or all of a sudden they're couching their mm -hmm. responses in terms of possibilities right. or probabilities. Uh, kills us. It right. kills us. That's why I like the doctors that testify that they don't deal with possibilities. They deal with medical certainty. Right. Right. It's also a reason, I think, me personally, mm -hmm. I prefer IME physicians who just do IMEs, right? You know, sometimes um, we're looking or our adversaries say, oh, your doctor, you know, they use the term is a whore. They only do defense IMEs. Mm -hmm. That's, they go, well, okay, but, you know, at least we understand where they're coming from. We know what their uh, their biases are a little bit, but at least we know that they're they're not going to get rattled. They're not going to lose the, the, the sort of plot on their uh, during their testimony. Um, so me personally, I like prefer, I enjoy uh, deposing or putting in testimony of experts. I mean, you know, pros, this is what they do. They know how to testify mm -hmm. as opposed to treating physicians who sometimes, uh, you know, they, they, they are in a different world and everything is, well, well, maybe that could happen or it's a possibility or probabilities. They're a little unsure. So that's what we really like to see on cross-examination. Somebody really holds up uh, and an opinion we can depend on. I know. You know, we've looked back at all the depositions we've done in the last six months. We rate those doctors. Hey, this, this one sticks to their story. This one sticks to their guns. This one doesn't. And that's really important from our perspective. All right. Um, we do have time for questions. We like to have questions as part of this. Uh, let me move forward here and see if we got any today. Okay. So question from Marlene. If we send a copy of the job description to the IME doctor, for the doctor to review for the return to work, do we have to send a copy to the uh, workers' compensation board? Well, I think the answer to that is pretty clear. Yes, everything that we're sending to the physician needs to be copied to all parties. Agree? 
Agreed. Agreed. Um, and that's the kind of thing where there's really no surprise value to the job description. Um, and so we really don't want to have a problem with revealing that to the IME physician. Mm-hmm. Understanding that everything you send to this physician is going to be uh, end up in the board's file. But again, there isn't really any uh, surprise value to that. Uh, and I think that helps us because it really annoys me when the claimant says, you know, the doctor releases them for some kind of modified or light duty work. Right. And they come into court. And what do they say? They go, oh, the job they gave me was impossible. I could never have done it or I was exhausted. And they you know, complain that the job is well beyond their restrictions. Right. I mean, that's typically how they get around. It. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really have no problem with getting that job description out there. Having the, jo- the doctor specifically comment on it really helps us defend the case. OK. Uh, and now I have another question. This is from Lee. I'm going to read this question. Regarding this new bogus rule about precluding an IME if duplicate medicals are filed, is there any legal basis to support this? Or more to the point, is a preclusion of the IME on this basis defensible? Okay, so I think Lee is referring to the new regulations mm-hmm. and guidance that came out from the board. Uh, actually, it's guidance. It's from the board itself. I don't think it's in the regulation mm-hmm. that says anything that the uh, IME physician is going to review uh, has to already be in the board file. But the board and the judges have been bouncing or precluding IMEs uh, if we're double submitting it. So we have situations. I mean, has this happened to you yet in court? This person never happened to me yet. Right, right. And I think our the vend- it, this comes down to a vendor problem. Mm-hmm. Is the vendor complying? Um, and we have I have absolutely seen this. I mean, you know, in Hopog, mm-hmm. it seems like you haven't had this this trouble, but you know, we go to twelve hearing points all mm-hmm. the time, and we have seen reports absolutely bounced. And we've seen judges try to bounce them. Of course, we argue that's an appealable issue because mm-hmm. the, the regulation doesn't say that. That's just board guidance. Um, one of those things that I think we're always competing with is the fact that the board puts plenty of stuff on its website um, and under FAQ sections of, you know, descriptions of disability duration guidelines, et cetera. That isn't in the regulations. It isn't in the law. It isn't in the rules. There really is no reason why. An IME, I mean, when you think about it, common sense, why preclude an IME because records that are in the IME were double filed with the board? Why does that uh, diminish the doctor's uh, credibility or opinion? It doesn't make any sense. So we're not, I'm not aware of any case law that says that. However, I know the board has issued that guidance stating essentially that if your vendor uh, resubmits medicals to the board that have already been in the board file for the purpose of scheduling the IME, uh, they're going to bounce or preclude that IME under Section 137. All right, and I don't see any more questions popping up. Thanks for the questions, Marlene and Lee. Um, and that's going to conclude our conversation today. Now, uh, please come back next month uh, because next month our topic is going to be evaluating claims for permanency exposure. Uh,